What is up, y'all? This is Connie Morgan with the Free Black Pop Podcast. Our guests this episode are two special people by the name of Winkfield Twyman Jr., a black man, and Jennifer Richmond, a white woman, who came to the podcast to discuss their recently released book, Letters in Black and White, a new correspondence on race in America. The book is a collection of letters centered around the topic of race that they wrote back and forth to each other over the course of years, discussing, dissecting, and ultimately proposing solutions to the ideological problems they see facing America. It is with great pleasure that I welcome Wingfield Twyman Jr. and Jennifer Richmond to the show. And remember, there's no such thing as the Black perspective, just Black people with perspectives. You're listening to the Free Black Thought Podcast. Wink, Jen, thank you so much for joining me on the Free Black Thought podcast today. We are here to talk about your book, Letters in Black and White, a new correspondence on race in America. And I have to say that this book is, it surprised me. So for folks who haven't heard of it yet, shame on you. You should, if you follow FBT, we've been promoting the heck out of it. So where have you been? You should be reading this book and picking it up as quickly as possible. But this is a book that's a correspondence between the two of you writing letters back and forth. It's a black man and a white woman talking about race and how you both perceive racial issues to be in America, what you think maybe solutions are to problems, that sort of thing. And when I hear about a book that's okay, a couple of people writing letters, these aren't love letters. These aren't letters from (laughs) war. Is this book just going to be dull? And when I got the book, it's kind of, it's a little bit thicker even than I expected. And I was like, what (laughs) is this book going to be? But I got to tell you and tell our listeners, it's great. I mean, I, I read it quickly. It wasn't a struggle. I wasn't dreading, you know, okay, I got to read this book to do my show prep, nothing like that. So, so good work to both of you. But before we get into to specifics about the book. How about you each tell us a little bit about yourself, give us a short little bio, and then we can kind of, you know, set the stage for how your relationship even began and this book came to fruition. I'll go first. So um, Connie, first of all, thank you for that lovely introduction. Uh, <laughs> kind words. I appreciate that. Uh, I enjoyed writing the book and it, it reminded me of the, the unique perspectives I bring to the issue of race. I mean, my life really has spanned the gamut. Uh, so I was born in 1961 in the capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia. So I was born in an age of Jim Crow segregation. And I began school in an all-Black world. I actually uh, lived on Twyman Road, and everyone on Twyman Road was a relative. So until I was eight years old, I assumed the world was related to me. And there was a marvelous benefit to that because it gave me a great sense of self, a sense of self-confidence, uh, a sense of assertiveness. So when I when my world is segregated in the third grade, I had to um, uh, realize that the world was not just Twyman's. There were people outside of the world of Twyman's <laughs> in the universe. And so part of my great life story is how I learned to navigate that larger world and uh, discover who I was in a sense. I was a very ambitious kid, graduated from high school uh, in 1979 in a southern s- small town suburb. Went off to University of Virginia, became a history major, loved history, and then uh, off to Harvard Law School, which I did not like so much. Uh, And after that, (laughs) I worked at a major law firm in Manhattan. And then I scurried down south to Washington, D.C., and worked for uh, two members of Congress, Congressman Barney Frank and uh, Henry Gonzalez from San Antonio. Uh, Met my lovely wife, Skylar, who happens to be a descendant of the uh, first black congressman, Congressman Joseph Rainey. 
And then from there, it was out to San Diego, uh, where I taught law. And uh, now I, uh, aside from my day job as an attorney, I write. Uh, and this book, Letters in Black and White, is a, is a nice synopsis of my, uh, my, my life story and my perspective on race during these contentious times. That's my story. Yeah, okay. So it's a hard one to follow. <laughs> I think with me, I my big watershed moment in my life, my father was Air Force. Uh, we lived overseas. He was the Air Force attache in what was then called Burma. It's now called Myanmar. And that, I think, really set the stage for who I am. This was during the Cold War, where the Russians were supposed to be the other. And I'll never forget being at a party one time and actually meeting the Russian attache and getting this big, now I will say it was a stereotypical bear hug, right? But yeah. getting this big hug and there was just like, it, I, I just remember thinking in my small little brain, why do we hate, like, why do we hate them? Like, I don't even understand. And so I ended up being an international, I love, I love living overseas. I love living in, again, Burma was so truly foreign at the time in the 80s. I came back and I studied international relations and I ended up uh, learning, speaking, studying Chinese. So I went to undergrad Chinese, went to get my master's at Johns Hopkins Sice uh, in international relations, even worked on my PhD in international relations while I was working for a, a private intelligence firm called Stratfor. And so China was my, that's all I did pretty much, I mean, from a young kid onwards, international relations. That said, I think what drew me into this conversation was having someone with a background who lived in places like Burma, which was a military junta, you know, China, which, you know, Mao Zedong and even you know, all the leaders that we have now that have been a very authoritarian regime. Uh, and just see having that view of the world made me feel very, I don't know, Wink and I talk about this in this book. I don't yeah. proud. Proud is not the right word, but. It just I, I respect for what I saw from the outside looking in of this uh, of, of diversity of you know, America was truly unique in, in so many ways. And so I ended up coming back to the United States after living overseas a good part of my life. I started to see like that's ideal American ideal that I had in my mind was, you know, was just not really the really true, although I believed in what we were saying. I believe we were working to make it true, but there was so much, you know, that we needed to do. And so I started looking yeah. at issues around polarization. I started to get curious about what was happening in our current moment, since I felt like I was have I was almost coming at it as a foreigner. And as I started to do that, I realized that race was one of the biggest wedge issues around our polarization. And so for me, I had started to write already. I'd started Truth In Between, which was my writing venture. And I was seeking people to write to me who were different from me, whether it was because they were politically different, their melanin was different, they were, you know, a man. Well, I was just, I was, I was on a search for information. And so I ended up attending a, and we'll probably get into this. So this is going away from who I am to how Wink and I met. So I'll, <laughs> I'll wrap this up quickly. But I went to a diversity training in that quest to find more information so that I could be a better citizen and contribute, you know, to, to hopefully some of the solutions in America. And I was sorely disappointed in what I found out. <laughs> and I will stop there because that's where then our story yeah. of Wink and I come in. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's the next question, right? Well, first, what's truth in between? Tell us so, about that. You know, it, it is an LLC. 
But it really just started out at first. I thought I was going to do like have almost a little home boutique industry around letter writing. So that's why I created an LLC. Mm. But you know, it really just became my writing venture. So it was, if you go on, I really don't use, we use Substack now. So we've got a truth in between right. you know, at Substack.com, but we were using Medium at first and it was, and kind of have stopped using Medium altogether actually. But if you go there, you'll see it is a, it's a collection of letters. People like literally, it went so well. And this is before COVID. People were reaching out to me saying, I want to write a letter. I want to meet someone who mm. thinks differently than me. And so it was so, I was so passionate about because it, it was other people saying, I don't know why you think that way. C- hook me up with someone, you know, who thinks differently so I can have this conversation. So you were more of linking people together versus them always writing you. You'd be like, you need to write this person. And then they'd go mm. off and have their own relationship. And you were just kind of out of it at that point. Both and, both okay. and. So sometimes I'd link people and then sometimes people would write to me directly and I felt um, committed to responding. And okay. so most of those conversations are in truth in between. Now truth in between is now truth in between.com. We also have the truth in between Substack, but that's where Wink and you can find everything Wink and Jen. Uh, you can find our previous articles. What's really cool, by the way, I, I wasn't planning on plugging this, but I want to tell you this because I know Free Black Thought has been so supportive of it. What we, Wink and I went to the Victims of Communism Museum a couple of weeks back together. And on the wall of the museum are all these different pictures of people who have been affected by communism. I know I'm going off on a tangent here. Bear no, with me. Totally Dunn. fine. And so what uh, the, the CEO, Ken Pope, was telling us, he said, what I'd really love is to have this wall as it is, but then where you could touch on the, like have it digital, you can touch on the picture and then the life story of whoever you touched on came up. And so Wink and my my best friend Vera, who's a marketing specialist, we're all kind of standing there together, scratching our head. And we came up with this idea. Wink has written stories of over almost 50 black lawyers. Actually, 100. Okay, so 100. And he said, what? Modesty. The the wall was named, of the Victims of Communism Memorials, it was named Remember Us. And so if you go to truthinbetween.com, there's a page called Remember Us. And every week I'm putting in like seven new black lawyers and, mm. and then once a day uh, highlighting one of them on, on Twitter. And I know y'all are familiar with that because you've been sometimes um, retweeting them, which is awesome. Yeah. But that is our like, I mean, it's all started with lawyers because obviously the work has already been done and Wink has already r- written it. So instead right, of starting right. from scratch, but it will eventually be beyond lawyers. I mean, it will be this like wall of remember these like, uh, amazing heroic figures who helped build build this country and so mm-hmm. i'm super super proud about that when you talk about like what our solutions are um i feel like wink and i between writing the book and having these conversations and trying to put the spotlight these heroes um i, I think uh, hopefully we're a part of the solution to the, the conversation yeah. that's really been polarizing america it excites me because uh you know, sometimes there is this hunger, this thirst in Black culture and consciousness for the negative, the 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 oppressed, uh, the downtrodden, the, the 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 horrible stories in our past. And wouldn't it be a better world if instead there was more of a hunger in Black culture and consciousness for the positive, yes, for the yes. heroic, mm-hmm. for the epic, for the transcendent? for the timeless. And that's what I really find exciting about this exhibit is because we cannot let these great achievements from our past dissipate in the name of social justice or dogma or whatever. 
we have to stand firm because if we forget them, then they may be forgotten for all time. And that would be a horrible, horrible thing in my judgment. So, so I well, love black history and the well, black Iraq in the past. Will it only be black, black um, heroes or are you going to cross over into all kinds of different ethnic groups? That's a good question. Right now, again, remember, Wink has a hundred stories right. already. Wink's done, <laughs> done the legwork. Yeah. <laughs> right now, with with all the other work we're doing, between him being, uh, you know, an sure. inter- a practicing attorney sure. and me being you know, the the director of the Institute for Liberal Values, we're doing the mm-hmm. best we can. But ultimately, yeah. no, kind of what I would love in my perfect world, if, you know, I had an infusion of cash to be able to do this, what would yeah. be to realize actually Ken Pope's vision with victims of communism, it would start with black Americans because that's, I think where the conversation needs to start right now. Mm-hmm. That is the polarizing mm-hmm. thing that I problem that we have in America, but no, it wouldn't it be, it would be stories of heroism and building this country, a remembrance, if you will. Yeah. And yeah. I would yeah. love to see it grow beyond what it is right now to answer your question. No, but, but in that's the future. a human, yeah, yeah that's right. Right, right, right. And I think Connie's question is really insightful because one of my operating principles in life is I don't need people who look like me to prosper and achieve and do well in life. And so I think that expanding the universe of people in our exhibit over time is a, is a is a plus because mm-hmm. that's the that's the important point to make is that everyone can inspire the young. You don't necessarily have to be of X or Y uh, skin color. I think that's a great point. Yes, yes. So, okay. <laughs> then you met because Wink wrote you through Truth in Between. How did how did you actually start connecting? Okay, so not quite. Wink actually helped me build out, and now Truth in Between is really just Wink and I. I mean, it started out as something else, but it didn't start, our conver- our relationship didn't really start there. I was already doing that. I went to this diversity training, City of Austin put it on, and I was floored by what happened. And, you know, it's, it's all, it, it, I, I won't go into details. It's the same stuff that you hear, privilege walks, you know, wearing your color badge, et cetera. And I was just like, wow, this is, and, and keep in mind, Connie, remember, I went there with, with genuine heart going, hey, you know, what are we, po- what's, what's polarizing America? How can I learn? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, oh, if this is the answer, then we we're, we're we're worse off than I thought. Like we are yeah. having we're, we're like not at all even trying to have a conversation. It's the opposite. So I wrote mm-hmm. about it. I wrote about it when Helen Pluckrose was the editor of Ariel magazine and she published it. And it was that how Wink then got and uh, saw me, wrote me, and Wink, I'll let you take the story from there. Sure. Well, at the time, uh, Connie, I was in a state of, shall we say, racial despair, racial alienation. <laughs> I, I had a conversation with a, a relative uh, a few months previous to that, and we were discussing race. And the relative had said to me, and I quote, it was April 21st, 2018. I wrote down that date. Blackness is oppression. Nothing else matters. And I thought to myself, this is coming from someone who is probably more blessed than 99% of the planet, really. And right, I just yeah. wondered, how could this person firmly hold on to that dogma? And so I was in this, this kind of state of racial demoralization, for lack of a better word, uh, in my family. And then one morning, as I was getting prepared for work, 
I turned on my uh, computer and I usually read uh, Aereo magazine. And I saw this uh, column by someone who was also disaffected with the discourse in the public square. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, here's a kindred spirit. Here's someone who is understanding the same things I'm understanding. So I reached out to this person, sight unseen, didn't know who she was. And I told her about my own uh, uh, alienation. And I made the suggestion that maybe the people who should be part of her letter project are people who share the relationship to American slavery as old Americans. Because I didn't think people who were perhaps uh, recent immigrants to the U.S. I have a close friend who's an immigrant from Hong Kong. I didn't think she would have the same affinity for the issue as someone who had ancestors who were indeed part of American slavery. And I think that's how our correspondence began. Jen was intrigued by my letter. She responded. I responded to her. And before you know it, we had the uh, the idea of, of a book. So, yeah. How how long were you writing letters back and forth before you realized this was going to turn into a book? Okay, I'm going to guess, and Jen, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm going to guess perhaps, what, two, three, four months? What do you think? I think that sounds right. And and here's the truth of the matter, though. You know, Connie, we about about three or four months in, I was I was getting so much out of this conversation. And obviously it was novel in in the world of DEI. And I was like, mm-hmm. I would love other I want to again being the letter writer that I am, I was like, I want to encourage other people to have these real conversations. So about three to four months in, I was like, you know, I wonder if this is something that we would could share with people. And we started playing with the idea, but I would say we we didn't get a letter, a book deal until after we, and our writing wasn't geared towards writing a book really at, at all. We got the book deal and then we literally took our letters that we had been writing and we, they're actually a lot of them almost are chronological, but we just decided to parse them out by theme rather than yeah. um, chronology. Yeah. And so, you know, the first section or epistolary one is, is on slavery. And that's how we did start the conversation, right? It was like, what, well, what, how do we have this conversation on slavery? So most of those are our earlier letters. Then epistolary two is Wink telling me these stories of, of black heroes and my response, people like John Mercer Langston and uh, George Boyer Vachon. And then uh, epistolary three is kind of our current conversation on what's happening in America, why we have certain, you know, and that's where kind of my background, Jack and Jill, Jack and Jill. One of my favorite stories about eating watermelon that took was very interesting. Uh, And so, so I, all that to say, most of our letter writing, I mean, almost all, actually all of our letter writing was very, very organic, even though we started thinking about this, we could put this together as a book three to four months in. I would say it was about three years into our letter writing, maybe two two years, yeah. at least two years where we decided that, yeah, this is, this is a book and signed a deal. You know, Connie, what made the book possible and successful, I think, was a certain open-mindedness on, on our respective sides. So for example... And Jen may or may not touch upon this uh, later, but she had begun an earlier effort. She wasn't writing letters to someone else. And I had a chance to read some of those those letters. And there was a fatal flaw, I thought. And the fatal flaw was that other correspondent seemed unable to talk to Jen without the use of what I call slogan words. In other words, that person 
would use filter words like systemic racism or institutional racism or white privilege or white fragility or marginalization or you, you know the, the words. And I felt that that made true, genuine communication between two humans difficult, if not near impossible. One of the benefits I brought to the table, to the correspondences, I totally... Uh, don't communicate through slogan words. I don't communicate through jargon or dogma. I really strive to write about life and the things I see as best I can uh, in words that communicate genuine feeling and emotion. And I think that was really uh, important to the success of the piece. Do you agree with that, Jen? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and yeah, I think you can see that, you know, Connie, I'm sure you like, we don't, Wink and I don't, the nice thing too is we don't, always it's not that we don't get along we don't agree on on a lot and there's a lot oh, of yeah. like pushback and you see even the first couple of letters he kind of was like i won't speak in slogan words i yeah. mean it's yeah. like if you if you want to have keep yeah. having this i was yeah i was actually gonna say both of you were very respectful and and there was no i, I didn't find anything to be like demeaning or right. calling people no. names but I did, I did tell Week this a while ago after I had first read it. I was like, you came in hard sometimes. <laughs> oh, very, yes. Yes. And I, there was times because Week and I have a much less, you know, we write letters a little bit back and forth, not like you guys as well. And I was like, you're always a lot nicer to me. I feel like you <laughs> <laughs> did not pull any punches. Wink, for, folks who, for folks who don't, who haven't read the book yet. Wink doesn't pull any punk punches. He's very much of you are in charge of your destiny type of person. Yeah. Um, right. Whereas Jen is that way too, but c- comes at it with a little bit more. Well, let's take into account all this histor- historical stuff and um, sure. just a, actually more feminine, right? You come at it with a little bit yeah. more of a feminine approach than, than Wink does. And so I, I was actually, I think I laughed out loud a couple of times because Wink would just, he would just say I don't care about this. You know, I can be sure. successful. You can be successful. Right. And right. It, I just imagine Jen being like, oh, okay. Okay. Oh, if, I, right. if I can have your permission, Connie, can I read a paragraph from the book? Because I think this really oh, yeah. sets yes. up what you're talking yes. about. Please. So, so when we were traveling to Yale for, uh, to, to visit my daughter, who's a student there, my wife read the book, a draft of the book. And it was funny because she said, well, I like Jen's writing better than yours. And I asked her, why is that? And she said, well, I, could, I can tell that one writer is a woman and one is a man. And that intrigued yeah. me. That intrigued me. And you're just reinforcing that, Connie. But this is, I think, one of the key paragraphs in the entire correspondence. And I think Jen would agree. This is where we reach the precipice. This is where we <sighs> disagreed the most, if you will, where the writing almost came to a standstill. And this is how it started. Ola Jin, how do we create belief in the idea of a shared American identity? For starters, let's start thinking of the history of slavery as a common history between Black and white Americans. Don't you think old Americans share a common history in American slavery? My daughter may wish to deny them, but her ancestors in Virginia date back to Peter Montague in the year 1621. You and I share a common history in our antebellum past, don't you think? Or maybe not. 
as you do not have slaves in your direct line. Does that matter? And if so, in what way does the absence of slaves in your direct line render your history of slavery different from my history of slavery? Remember, as Eugene Genovese said in Roll, Jordan Roll, The World the Slaves Made, we cannot understand the slaves without the slave owners, and we cannot understand slave owners without the slaves. Why do you think there's no overlap in the common history of old Americans? Americans, for example, who can trace their ancestry in Virginia back to the year 1621. Cool breezes in San Diego. Wink. And that was the point of our most uh, fervent disagreement. Because I bring to the table a strong vision, Connie. And my vision is, when I was in Hawaii last week, we were at a plantation. It has a different meaning in Hawaii plantation. It had been like a sugar plantation. Uh, and we met this guy who was a, uh, a rum taster. And he was so proud of the fact that his ancestors had come to Hawaii from Japan, China, the Philippines, Puerto Rico. And he proudly embraced all strands of his identity. He's a native Hawaiian, he said, but my grandpa came from here, grandma came from here, great-grandpa came from there. And I thought to myself, that's what I'm trying to bring to the mainland. Black Americans and white Americans should embrace all of the strains of their past because you'll be a stronger people in that way. And that's my vision of old Americans. We should be like that guy, that rum taster on the wild island Kauai, who openly embraces all strands of his ancestry with pride. And he's a native Hawaiian ultimately. But Jen took exception. And Jen, perhaps you might explain why you disagree with the idea of old Americans in this current cultural moment. Yeah, this was our big one. Uh, And we had to revisit it several times. I think the theme throughout the book. Uh, Let me let me preface this to say I love the idea of old Americans. And so where weak in my disagreement was the most fervent was not necessarily between he and ourselves, himself and myself or our ideas, but more in how I thought whether or not America could accept Wink's idea of the old Americans. Yeah. yeah. And so what I said to Wink, and this became a huge sticking point. Yes. He kept on using it again later in other letters. Remember that? Remember that? like, yeah, uh, <laughs> we're like we're like the old married couple. Remember ten years ago when you like put that there? Remember that? So, anyways, I said this is what the, I go said, away, I, Skylar. Go away. Yeah. Just easy. <laughs> I said, uh, yeah, we we are such. A, this is, uh, anyway, uh, uh, let me digress for a second. Sure. I love calling Wink and I like the odd couple. I just think we're, you know, we're so different True. in so many ways and we're so, right. so much fun together and we're so alike yeah. in so many ways. Okay, yeah. I digress. So what I said to Wink that had the most contention was I think that would be seen as sidestepping history. Mm-hmm. That word sidestep, that's the word that he keeps on, you know, that's, pulls back that in. That was a trigger, here. Connie. That it, was a trigger. It was, I mean, he like... <laughs> With what? like the, the next, I, I thought that was benign. I thought you know whatever. Yeah. yeah. The next letter I got from him, I was like, oh my! I was like, hold on. <laughs> you were triggered, yeah. So yeah. yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, because 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 Connie, come come with me, Connie. Let's look at this dispassionately. This book is the opposite of sidestepping history. It's like the world turned yeah, upside yeah. down, right? Don't you? I mean, don't you think this is the opposite in our book of sidestepping history? We dig into oh. it. Oh yeah, you, know? you do. You absolutely yeah. do. And there's some things that I kept, I mean, this is the type of book where you're marking it up because you're like, that's a good, that's an interesting concept. That's an interesting idea. Yeah. And you're also marking it up because you're like, what was, who's that? I need to go dig, you know, I need to read the footnotes and read the yeah. book that they're citing or whatever. So you get, you get both from, from reading this, which is, which is great. And, and on that note, this is kind of a, I'm sure Jen has thoughts too. It's kind of related, but Wink, you have a quote where you say, let's remember the slave children sold away from slave mothers, internalize that image and set the world on fire with long range plans. Yes. But I think yes. that's what a lot of black Americans think they're doing. I mean, they, they're like, yeah, that is what we're doing. We're literally setting the world on fire. <laughs> we, oh, have well. long range, we have long range plans. <laughs> to, we have long range plans to change everything. And so in a sense, you're not actually disagreeing with a lot of folks who are taking, I don't know, like a more progressive or sure woke sure. approach or whatever you want to call it to trying to solve some of the same problems that you and, and Jen talk about. Yeah. So what, what is your counter to that? And I think, you know, some of them would say just like Jen, your, your approach is more like sidestepping history. You just, you don't take it as serious even though you're, you're no, you don't ignore it. You're not saying this didn't happen. You're like, right. this didn't happen let's move on. Whereas like, no, sure. this happened and we need to marinate on it. That's more their attitude. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I, in my mind, Connie, I think there's a sharp contrast between destruction and construction. Uh, I was taught in, uh, I remember one day in the school bus in junior high school, uh, the school bus driver said to me, remember this in life, don't just criticize, criticize constructively. And that's kind of stayed with me as a, as a, as a part of a life philosophy. So I think that there's little to be gained in destroying things that have worked. And if you look at Black history, for example, we know the elements and the factors that contribute towards um, prosperity and achievement and accomplishment. I, I think that so oftentimes those who are on fire to transform are actually on fire to destroy or dismantle. And that's foolhardy because then what remains in this place? I mean, we've got the greatest nation on the planet in terms of our long-term uh, democratic system. We have a system which has been self-correcting in terms of movements like abolition or the right to vote for women. Um, so I think that it's foolhardy to have long-term plans to dismantle because dismantlement is really a moniker for destruction and there's never any idea of what would take its place. And that would be my question. I know in my vision that the long-term plans I have are constructive and they would result in more John Mercer Langston's throughout the land, more George Boyer Vachon's throughout the land, more Sadie Moselle Tanner Alexander's throughout the land, more people of accomplishment, more Thurgood Marshall's, more Charlie Houston's, more Oliver Hills, but I never get a sense from people who want to dismantle and destroy as their long-term plan. Well, what comes after that? What does the utopia look like that you're uh, preparing us for? 
I never see a well thought out design, but I do know what has worked in the past. So that's my answer to that question. Jen, do you have anything you want to add to that? I think that's pretty comprehensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. And, and, and we, you know that I agree that I agree with you. I just sometimes right. I struggle with convincing people or sure. using the right rhetoric or whatever, as Eric Smith would say, to to really poke that bear and be like, okay, sure. what is your right. utopia? And they right. kind of are just say a utopia. <laughs> that's what it will be. Well, yeah, yeah, right. It's yeah, just sure, utopia. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I, and, there's no major yeah. disagreement there, but I can see Jen's concern. Yeah. Right. Well, and I'll just say too, like this is a, a little bit off topic from where you your question I think meant to go. But when we talk about utopia, what my specialty is, and this is where I got into writing. I mean, to me, this smacks of like Marxism and communism and some of the language that is used. And yeah. it's very, it really is. And we can I talk some about language in our in our book. It's very very, and they even mentioned already slogans. It can be very, very insidious and it happens so subtly just in like, again, the words that we use that I feel like we can really overturn culture in a way like over time. And and some of the language that I see uh, around some of these racial issues are ones that are red flags for me because I saw them being used in places like the Cultural Revolution for reals. Like, okay, I wasn't in the Cultural Revolution. <laughs> I was sure. not that old. Right, but yeah. for reals in China, you know? I right, mean, literally right. like the same. And then that's what I studied. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, that was we a have bit a of a con- tangent, but. We have a constitution. We have an organic national document that binds us together as Americans. Uh, nowhere in the constitution does it say white privilege. Nowhere do you see the words white fragility. Nowhere do you see the words intersectionality. Nowhere do you see the words marginalization. What you do see are the words equal, equal protection under the law, not equity under the law, equal protection under the law. So I think that those who are hot to dismantle, the the, the more good faith approach would be to, well, go ahead, change our constitution if you can, so that we have a national mandate for equity or for anti-subordination as the case might be, but they won't do that. It's easier Mm -hmm. for them to succeed with the long march through the institutions, right? To capture certain institutions so that there's a top-down command effect, as opposed to a more authentic and good faith approach of changing through consensus our governing uh, document. Uh, that's, That's the wisdom of our founding fathers. They created this document that was so mindful of the um, nature of human existence and the human condition that they were able to skillfully separate various powers and yet uh, create this sense of out of many one. And that's why I return to old Americans. I just think if, if the average American of African descent, descendant of slaves, could expand their sense of self so that their sense of self includes the greater American story. Well, hey, I'm not just a descendant of an Igbo from Nigeria. I'm also a cousin of, you name it, I don't know, Richard Henry Lee or George Washington or Thomas Jefferson. I just think that gives you a a greater sense of how you're connected to the larger American story, which is sometimes something that uh, little Black kids lack and don't appreciate. And also, it's craziness, Connie. I know so 
I swear to God, I know someone <laughs> who is 52% European, 48% black, and this person is as <laughs> this person is as pro-black as the cows are are might be coming home <laughs> after whatever. But <laughs> to me, it's so silly. It's so silly because you're majority European in descent, and yet you present yourself as if you're 100 percent black. Well, that annoys I, me, Connie. I, 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 I like. Go ahead. I, yeah, I think no. people need to be the full cells. I talk about that in an earlier manuscript I, I produced. I think we're more up to be like that rum guy in Kauai. Respect your entire <laughs> heritage, mm-hmm. right? Don't just mm-hmm. pick out you know, that 48% and ignore the 52%. I'm going to get in yeah. trouble at home, I know. But <laughs> I just think that makes a lot of sense to me. I, you know. But here, I've got, I've got a question for both of you. Sure. Uh, Connie, just going on what you were saying, how some people say, yeah, but we still need to like wrangle with this you know, history or do this. Uh, if I understood you right, you know, what mm-hmm. would you say to those people? My question to you is, how, how have we not? I mean, I, do yeah. I agree that we have um, maybe some more ways to go? You show me where there's more ways to go. And I'm, I'm already, some of the stuff that I'm doing right now is creating um, curricula that brings mm-hmm. in a very different. So, I mean, I, I'm all about you show me where we're going wrong. But when people say we need to do history, that's a, our book does history yeah we have a one thing on slavery one thing on black heroism and no one's denying history i mean and, and in right. our first yeah. our first um you know book uh, our first you know section on 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 slavery i mean there are some we talk about things that are just absolutely horrible devastating so yeah, no, yeah. i mean devastating things that i mean and and through wink i learned these things i learned like what negro plaster was yeah which is awful like Oh my God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like I, sure. I did not know that. Okay. So we are doing history. Um, it's how we do history that we're, we're telling people what to think, not how to think. Yeah. And, and what we're showing them what to think is all negative. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so yeah. when people say, yeah. and so my question back to you two is when people say, well, we still need to wrangle with history. Okay. Who isn't doing that? Like, is there a place right now that is not wrangling with history? I Okay, let me just end by saying this. I was recently in California. Wink knows this story. My sister is six years younger than me. And I found, this is where I grew up to in high school. I found one of her high school papers from the 1990s. And it was talking about and her assignment. This was, she was a sophomore, was slavery. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about, like, the horrors of slavery. I mean, like, when yeah. have... Again, show me the place where we're not doing history and I will like do whatever I can to help in that way. But I have not seen yet when people go, well, we still need to deal with history. I, we, we are. Yeah. And I at mean, what point do you say we dealt with it? Is there a point where you can go, okay, right. we dealt with it? Is, mm-hmm. there, is there a point? Yeah, There's no I, point. I mean, I, I agree. I agree with you both, right? I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit. And sure. like, how do we work with and get through to the people who are claiming for some reason that I don't know why they're claiming that we aren't dealing with, with history correctly, or we haven't wrangled with it, or we haven't had our come to Jesus moment or whatever it is. Sure. Um, so I, I'm pretty aligned with you. I'm just, I'm just curious as to what, if you've, cause you're in this, this is what you do, Jen, you have conversations with people when you, if, and when you have a breakthrough with someone, where they go, you know what? Actually, maybe my concerns aren't as legitimate as I thought, or you, mm. you know, you, you're showing me something that I didn't think of. When does that happen? How, you know, 
what do you, what are your strategies to kind of point some of these things out to people in a way that doesn't just turn them off? It's not combative or whatever. You're wrong. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Just pointing fingers kind of thing. You know, I, I, if you don't mind, I'll answer that because I think wink, I don't know if that you would answer it the same way, but there's something I admire a lot about you um, in this answer is really just to listen. You know, it's not, I mean, us listening, us telling our story, us listening to a story that's not our own and genuinely caring about that story and hearing that story. I think it's the only way that you change, you can't change minds. You have to change hearts. And when someone goes, that person actually really cared what I had to say and really heard me. Now, why I bring Wink into this answer is we've had a few conversations with people that not both of us don't agree with. Mm-hmm. Uh, on we, we we did a short series. I, I won't name which ones are which, but we did a short series of five uh, pre you know letters in black and white podcasts on the dissidents podcast. And the thing is, is at no point did we we would disagree or we'd ask questions. Can you tell me more about that? Because my experience isn't that. So we mm-hmm. and this is in particular talking with someone who has more melanin in their skin than myself. And Wink is pushing back and he's curious. Uh, no, you're right. That wasn't my life story. So tell me, tell me more. Mm-hmm. And um, honestly, I think I will say one more thing and then I'll, I'll let Wink answer. The other thing that I learned from Wink, A, is to listen. And B, though, I think this is key to that, is don't engage bullies. So if someone comes to you in good faith and says, I don't agree with you. Blackness is oppression. Let me tell you why. To go, tell me why. Like, I, I haven't heard your story. But if you come to me and you go, you're an idiot, you don't know anything, you don't, you know, how can you tell the story? Well, I'm then Bye. then we're not going to yeah. get anywhere within mm-hmm. the conversation. And so I think that's and, yeah. and I think Connie is particularly poignant uh, when it's something you encounter within your family circle. So, for example, uh, you know, we, we all love our siblings and our children and our cousins. Of course we do. That's a natural part of the human existence. Unless someone's really messed up, uh, you have a fondness and affection for blood kin. So I find it particularly poignant when someone you are drawn to, who you respect a lot, uh, they read the book and the first thing they say is, well, I'll tell you, you got to take those blinders off. You've got to look at reality. Uh, there's, you talk too much about positive stuff. You talk too much about successful black people. That the reality on the ground is people are struggling every day. But yeah, I had this this, this conversation. And so, what do you do? I mean, you listen, but you just you disagree. But to what degree do you disagree? And do you want to create disharmony? with that close family member you may respect. To me, that's one of the poignant issues is how do you address Mm -hmm. these racial divisions of, uh, of opinion and perspective within, within families? Uh, You know, the larger world is a different issue, but I think I've always thought some of the most courageous free thinkers on the planet are black American nonconformers and dissidents. Mm-hmm. People who really go their own way, because there's a very strong um, push towards groupthink in Black American culture. According to the Pew Research Survey, 76% of Black Americans consider Blackness extremely important or very important to their sense of self. Only 24% of 
consider it of no value or small value. That's so actually that's higher when, than I would have guessed, to be honest. Okay. Like, yeah. even that so, is like, yeah. <laughs> so, so those 24%, <laughs> just imagine the constant, um, you know, decisions they have to reach every day within their, their living space, within their family. Uh, someone says something. A grandma over Thanksgiving dinner makes some comment about BLM or kneeling or whatever. Do you speak up or do you just keep your peace for the sake of family mm-hmm. or harmony? Uh, someone makes a comment about, well, we can't uh, do what they're doing because they're white and we're black. And you immediately feel like, don't teach little kids stuff like that. But do you keep quiet for the sake of family harmony or do you speak up? I mean, I think that there's so many black Americans in that 24% that face those kind of decisions in their living space all the time. And they have to make those decisions. And I just think uh, kudos to those people who, uh, you know, have the wherewithal to uh, stay true to their own values, even when they're outnumbered. And I, I, I just think, you know, people who are free, people who are black free thinkers are some of the most, um, unsung spirits of individuality uh, on the planet. That's my thinking. Yeah. Oh, I agree. I I think um, we even just personally get a lot of hate (laughs) for for not towing the line. Um, Not not, towing the line. (laughs) Right. Not a ton, even necessarily from my family, at least not to my face. Right, right. Uh, maybe, there's back, some <laughs> maybe there's some grumblings behind my back. That's um, funny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, I have a great family. But yes, I can definitely, I yeah. I've, I mean, I've seen people who are, are gay or trans or whatever, and they say like, it was harder to come out as a black conservative than it was to come out as trans or gay or, or whatever the case may be. That's all anecdotal. But right, I definitely right. think there's some truth to your sentiment there. But, um, and, and one of the things that, that you both talk about, and we've already talked about this is kind of what you're doing with your project to feature these black lawyers is that, you know, black, black history or black slavery in particular is taught without a, uplifting a lot of black achievement and that we should focus more on these positive stories. Right. And right. so I actually wonder, well, and that's, that's the complaint of a lot of parents, which this with black parents in particular, with this huge increase in black homeschooling, people want to see more black faces featured in history and all that all that's wonderful my question to you is where who's responsible for for teaching these things because when I was in I and I actually like made a list I was like okay who did I learn about in high school black figures and the teachers only have so much time right they cannot they have to hit the highlights across all ethnicities and group unless you have a teacher who has this like niche interest and they're really you know fascinated by george washington carver or something and so they spend more time on that but generally speaking you know we talked about frederick Douglass in my little redneck high school um that was majority white we did du bois versus booker t and then we compared malcolm x to mlk we read howard's in who's a people's history, which is like, he's a communist guy. We, we don't have to get into that. You know, right. we talked about the Harlem Renaissance. We hit, we hit the high points. We hit the biggest moments. I would say at least most of them, all of the stories that you tell wink are things, a lot of the things in this book, people I've never heard of and stuff. And it's all great, but I wonder <laughs> a teacher does not have time. We didn't, we didn't talk about any Asian influence in America, really. It was really just black and white in my history, Mm -hmm. in my history Mm -hmm. classes. 
a little bit here like oh and there was chinese people on the railroads moving on you know oh there's <laughs> yeah. an internment camp that was bad <laughs> moving on you just don't have time and it's gonna get harder and harder right because history <laughs> it's gonna get longer and longer and there's more right. stuff to cover so what's the solution in terms of education do parents just need to you know they need to be filling in the blanks at home what what does it need to look like does 13 percent of our history need to be focused on black and then that's split between some of the bad stuff and some of the good stuff what what does the solution actually look like education wise i know that's like a huge question but something i'm constantly thinking about it's a great question to be constantly thinking about and there's a huge answer uh Two things come to my mind. I'm sure there are more possibilities as answers, but two things come to mind. Number one, and what I did, what worked for me, is I, I used to, Jen knows this, I used to read a book a day in junior high and high school. When the school bell rang, rang at the end of the day, I would run to the library, pick a history book, check it out, take it Nerd. home, and read. I know. I know. Uh, so yeah, so what I would do is I would pick a history book. And sometimes they would be about uh, Black American figures. And so that went that continued through high school. And I remember in high school reading about Black members of Congress in a book. Um, and so I discovered a lot. And I learned so much just by reading that my uh, 11th grade history teacher asked me to teach Black history to my class. So I actually taught Black history to my class as an 11th grader uh, and prepared an exam, quizzes, and all that kind of stuff because my knowledge base was so deep. She didn't have that same knowledge base. And then number two, what about weekend uh, academies or schools? Like maybe every Saturday uh, have like an hour or two class in the community or neighborhood where you just come together and you learn about two or three figures in Black history. If you do that every week for a kid's junior high and high school education, they'll have the knowledge base by the time they reach high school. They'll be able to teach their class Black history by that point. Um, so, you know. So do you think about- every ethnic group should be doing that then? Like the Chinese get together and they talk about, and the Black people get together and they do their, like that's kind of what I'm, the Native Americans get together and they cover their people oh, that they want to cover. That's a good point. Um, I think it makes you a, a stronger person in terms of your knowledge base to know history so that so that you don't fall prey to false narratives. I guess that's my point. So if everyone does that and knows whatever their respective ethnic history is, not studies, because ethnic studies can be ideological. I'm really talking history per se. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then I think that's a good thing because then people are immunized from false narratives about Asian history or Native American history or black history. And, and maybe that explains why mm-hmm. I write with such confidence, because I learned about these things at, in my formative years, and it was self-directed reading. So think of it as, I was almost like a little Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln didn't go to school, he read, he taught himself. Similarly, I taught myself Black history because of a love and desire for knowledge. And so as a result, not only did I acquire the knowledge base, but I was immunized against the allure of false narratives, uh, which, you know, helps me quite a bit. Because uh, think about it. If you're a little kid and you don't acquire the knowledge, then you're more likely to be susceptible to false narratives in uh, college and grad school, right? Because you don't so, know any better. You don't, you don't know. I know someone who once told me, but dad, we only learn about slaves in school. I didn't know about Vashon or Langston or whatever. And that's a shame. And that's someone who went to a very, very good, let's say, top 50 uh, 
private school in the country and only learned about slaves. So that's a that's a concern. That's a problem. I, I would I would push back a little bit. I think on right what Wink Wink is saying, Connie. I feel like I, well, while I have no problem with there being like if you want to take Black history, Mexican history, I have I love it. Like offer as many you know different history classes as yeah. you want, but. I don't think, I mean, what I really would like to see woven through any of that is this idea of American history and how we, so again, this kind of, I I mean, yes, looking at what was bad and good, but also like looking how people came together. So whether you're taking Mexican American history or Native American history, looking at, I mean, being having it be tempered with both the good as well as the bad. And so I don't think that we, the way we're doing like things like ethnic studies now is actually resegregating is that the right way that, that's, yeah that's what i was going to say too like you don't you don't worry that that'll actually just if if wink if your solution was adopted sure. that it would be more tribalism and actually mm-hmm. and this is me speaking as a christian now with my biblical worldview it almost seems like you're making an idol out of your your heritage and your ethnic mm. backgrounds mm. and maybe focusing mm-hmm. too much on that because I mean, we li- it's good to know those things. And I totally get like being armed yeah. against narratives. But that is a concern of mine. Even even folks who are kind of on more of my side of the aisle, right? But they put they put their ethnic heritage on such a pedestal. It mm-hmm. does feel like idolatry to me at, at times. Mm. And then that leads to just more tribalism, but maybe in a way that we find more tasteful. I don't know. Yeah. That's a good point. I like that yeah, point, Connie. That's a really uh, that good point. Th- those are the unforeseen consequences of doing that. Maybe it's a balancing test. So you have to weigh the risk of that um, increased tribalism, which I think is there, over the benefit of added armor against the um, uh, the ide- ideological lures of the outside world. Maybe there's a balancing test involved. And so maybe you have to accept the risk in order to gain the benefit. Does that make yeah. sense? There's a, you gotta, yeah, there's a, le- there's levels to it. Yeah. This is something that I'm definitely going to like sit on and think mm-hmm. some more because oh, yeah. I am going to be, it, it, my children are very young, but a homeschool mom. And so that's too, why I'm like constantly thinking like, how do right. I want to balance these things? Are um, you doing homeschooling and- because you reject what you see in the education system today? Public education I'm going to be homeschooling education. for literally every reason that people homeschool. <laughs> every reason. That's good. I like that. All of I like them. That. The ideology, <laughs> the concerns about culture, the bullying, right. Right, right, my right. religious beliefs, all of right, it. But right. mm. we don't need to get in. That's a, that's a podcast yeah. for another time. But Jen, you you make this point in the in the book. Both of you do really. You say you know that America that Black Americans don't know much about their history past. American soil, right? Most of us don't know. I'm a descendant of slaves. I don't know where from Africa we came from. I don't know any of that. And I think that's that's the case for most most Black mm-hmm. Americans, mm-hmm. right? And that it's like a just a crying shame that that we don't know these things. And I'm I want to know these things just from a curiosity, like oh, it'd be nice to know. Yeah. But I have to say, I I sort of feel like I don't really care about my ancestry past the people that have had like a direct effect on my life. And for me, that's my grandparents. Mm-hmm. For other people, it's going to be, we've had a family business for 200 years. My great, 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 mm-hmm. great, great, grandpa started right, right, it. So right, they have right. that connection yeah. all the way back. Yeah. For me, I just, it doesn't go back that far. Am I, am I wrong? Cause I think that's an area where maybe I disagree with both of you. Cause I'm kind of like, it's interesting, but me knowing that I'm from Nigeria or whatever, nothing about my life is going to change once I know that, except they'll be like, oh, 
okay, that's that's interesting. Maybe I'm just a unique weirdo and my and I'm not normal and that's why this should so, be explored for more people, black Americans in particular. I think Week and I are gonna have two different two, two different answers to that. Um, because Week really loves ancestry. Mm-hmm. So yes. I don't know if Week you wanna answer it first or if you want me to, but I I, I... You go first, Jen, because I wanna okay. know what you have to say. Well, I don't, I am not as into the ancestry as Wink is. Connie, I'm, I'm probably more like you. Like, it's fun. My father did his, his ancestry. We did it all the way back to Ireland. You know, shocker. I'm Irish. I mean, who would have right. guessed it? Um, yeah, so, and that was fun. But like, like you said, like nothing changed in my life. Like I was right. like, yeah. uh, okay, you know, like, yay. Here's how I would use. So, but Wink loves Link loves, loves history. That mm-hmm. is his thing. So that for him, it's a, it's a it's a passion, an academic passion. But here's where I would say, if I, we were to do something different about, like, let's say diversity or education, like you were talking about, to take it back there. One of the things I would do, and actually Wink and I are working. You'll be glad to know we're working on a series of children's books. <gasps> oh. So hopefully you will be like your kids will be, but. <laughs> Wait, you never told me this. Oh my god. It's a secret. I was waiting it's to new. unveil it. Okay. It's new. <laughs> and we're still like, we're still like, what the hell are we doing and how do we do it? So there's that too. So, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But what I would do is have your kids fi- really find out, okay, by the way, I've got, you know, 10% black in me. I've got 10%, whatever. And find those cousins that look different. So that's what the very first week thing that Wink did when we started writing together was like, do your ancestry, find your black cousins. Yeah. And I did. Uh-huh. And it was so much fun. And, and the funny thing is, here's the funny thing. It didn't really even matter that they were black. We just talked like we were cousins. Or mm-hmm. family members. But that was what made it so cool. Cause it was like, who cares? You know, you're my cousin. I found you. Like, what have you been doing? What have you, like, n- never once. The only time race came up with one of my cousins was because she was listening to something that I was doing with Wink. Yeah. Where I mentioned race. And she was like, oh, okay, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, for me, I guess I lean on the side of, like, I, I like ancestry where we can see. I think it is a tool for us to see that we truly are more than just what yeah. yeah, we look like yeah, here. Yeah, that's fair. Mm-hmm. But I'm more like you, where like the fact that I can, you know, trace my lineage back to Charlemagne. I'm like, or whoever, whatever. I yeah, right. You know, right, like, right yeah, I'm like, right. okay. I mean, that's cool, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay wait, I'm going to take me. it away. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and maybe I'm unique uh, in the sense that you know I did grow up on the road called Twyman Road. So everyone's mm-hmm. a Twyman. We were all relatives. As I remember at a very young age, filled with curiosity, where did the Twyman's come from? How far back could I research them? And I always hit a brick wall at slavery. 1848 was when my paternal great-grandfather, Scott Twyman, was born. So like for 50 years of my life, over 50 years of my life, there was that curiosity, that unfulfilled curiosity, uh, because... The name really was a, an important part of my my sense of self, probably because I grew up, you know, in a place where everyone was a, a Twyman. And so when I discovered through genetic genealogy the rest of my Twyman story, I felt more complete. I felt um, more centered in a larger story. And I felt... Why did and, you and I feel could... the need to be centered in a larger story other mm-hmm. than the story you were writing for yourself? Oh, because I'm mm. part, a part of my um, drive in life from early 
has been to always engage the larger world. I very much view myself as a citizen of the world. I view myself as part of the greater universe. And so for me, understanding kind of where I fit into that larger story gave me a great sense of fulfillment, a, a greater sense of connectedness. I think in the Hindu religion or the Indian religion, I forget which which one it might be, there's this idea that we're all individuals at one level, but at a deeper level, we're all connected. And so by analogy, this discovery allowed me to kind of see how I was connected at a deeper, lower level to everyone else uh, in, in the world, mm-hmm. or at least other Twymans. And that, um, yeah, that just... Uh, gave me a great sense of, um, uh, of, of completeness. It's kind of hard to explain it better. It's kind of like trying to define what is love or what is passion or what is hunger. I mean, you, you strive for the words to kind of describe the sensation, but at some point the words fall short. Similarly, this idea of completion, of genetic ancestral completion, that's probably the best I can do in terms of describing that feeling but it did change my sense of self in the universe, for lack of a better word. And so maybe because of my personality or how I grew up, I, re- I felt inside a kind of um, uh, shift, if you will, a shift in place, uh, which I think was, was good and beneficial. Uh, and now in terms of connections to Africa, I'm kind of like you, Connie, in that way. I mean, I very much uh, appreciate knowing who my grandma's grandfather was, Daniel Brown, because this man, born in the 1830s and died in, in 1885, really had lingering effects on me that I could see. So, for mm-hmm. example, the land I lived on had been part of his estate, his farm. There you go, yeah. The church yeah. I attended, he founded in 1871. Yes. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that really, for me, makes a lot of, has meaning, has meaning. Yeah, yeah. But beyond Daniel Brown, in terms of his African antecedents, eh, no, not so much. Not so much. Not really. But people are different. I have a relative. I have two relatives, actually, who did 23andMe, and they ignored all of the findings except could they find out who the African ancestor was. That really was all they cared about, the African ancestor, the un. I never had that that kind of a feeling because I didn't know the person. So would it really make a difference? Like I know genetically that I come from the Igbo people, the uh, Bauman people, the Hassan people, but it doesn't really change anything for it. It doesn't change my sense of self. Uh, And so maybe the difference is I don't have any lived connection to Igbo people in Nigeria. Although it's nice to know part of them live inside of me. But when it comes to Twymans from Kent, yeah. England, that's my name. Yeah, <laughs> those are my people. Yeah, that's right. my those are my running buddies. And mm-hmm. similarly with my grandma's grandfather. I mean, the consequences of his life were all around me. So does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, you know, you know, it does. It does. I just wanted to get your perspective because sometimes yeah. I, I actually think I probably am weird. I think obviously the ancestry thing is very popular right now. People love right. looking into it, but I just and it's actually, it's kind of interesting too. So I said, I care, I like sort of just care to my grandparents, but that's right. actually on my black side. So I'm mixed, obviously. I think right. everybody knows that when they look at me <laughs> on my white side, it goes a little bit further back just because 
I am in Edwards. And I don't know if y'all remember the AG Edwards. They don't exist anymore, but they used mm-hmm. to be um, Banky, a firm right? outside of St. Louis. That is right. my AG Edwards is my great, 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 great. I don't even know how many greats grandpa oh, cool. or whatever, whoever That's founded really cool. that. So, yeah. and that has had an effect even on my family's financial situation to this day, sure. even though my mom never worked for them. So that connection goes a little bit back further on that side of the family, but it really right. only goes to my grandparents on my dad's side who I love and adore mm-hmm. and they, we still have the land that they bought and all that anyways right, so it's right. a little bit about me um but I think actually it sounds like the three of us are kind of aligned week you just yeah. almost have an obsessive compulsive thing when it comes <laughs> to, <laughs> to ancestry um and it, you talk about how important it is and it's like okay so when I'm teaching my own children again I'm always just thinking about it sure I could kind of care less about myself I'm always thinking about it in terms of my children what right. do I, and they're even more mixed. Their dad's Samoan. So there's, that's a whole nother okay. can okay. of worms to open for them. So they're just total melting pots, but, but that's I don't, so awesome. Yeah, it, it, is. it, it is. It is. It's great. It's, <laughs> it's wonderful. It. Yeah. yeah. Um, do but you think your um, kids will, will grow up to be like that guy we met in Kauai who proudly embraces all strands of his ancestry, yeah. but he's native American, native Hawaiian ultimately. I hope so. That is yeah. the goal. So, and actually I think, Jen, you say this in the book. You talk about how like maybe mixed kids are like the, the solution, right? The, yeah. Because I will never hate my mother. Right. Like I can't hate how white people right. because right. I can't. But I do. I do see mixed people throwing their white family members under the bus. Like it, I mean, Connie, call, what is that about? What is that wait, about? Let's call, I, can don't we talk. Know. Can wait, we talk? <laughs> I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story that really shocked the shocked me. I think I think we are seeing like the mixed the, the families you standing up for either other but. Someone told us a story, Wink, who will remain unknown. Wink knows the okay. story. But their child was mixed. And their child, it was February, so it was Black History Month. And during that month, that child so said to the part of the family that was white, um, said, told this that family member that this child was scared of them. Because, <sighs> because they hurt his other side. Hmm. So again, this is a small child. Like, okay, so maybe it's six, they, they, five, they, something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Five, yeah. five. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then this. So I mean, like, there. Then there's also if when they're young and impressionable, and you're being told, hey, you know, um, white people killed black people and stuff like that. I mean, these little three or third graders are going home, going, oh my god, you might kill mom in the night or dad or whoever. Oh my is. gosh. Oh. And this is a true story. This I'm. This yeah. is, I didn't yeah. make this up. She's not making it up. <clears throat> yeah, that's 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 awful. And and there are top. I think there are topics. That's a debate too. Why are you hiding slavery or lynchings or Negro plaster from kids at certain levels and and education? And I'm like, why do kindergartners need to know? That is way too big. Yeah, that's way too violent. Yeah. That's yeah. way too. I'm not hiding. My dad yeah. never hid the fact these things from us, but he didn't, I didn't watch, you know, movies or read books where there was like a lot of this violence and stuff till I was older and could handle it. Right. And right. Right. Understand things. That's, that's such a sad story. How awful to, yeah. Yes. That's, I agree. That's, I agree. And certain brains just aren't level, you know, little brains just aren't ready for certain concepts. That's just, that's my nightmare. Actually, that is truly just, just a nightmare scenario to have your child um, be confused about that. But you could see why, depending on mm-hmm. how they're being fed, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. these narratives. 
and mm-hmm. m- and it's maybe it's all it always is the the kind of white on 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 black grievances and never here's a situation where a white person stood up for a black person and vice versa where they became friends right. or they became secret lovers and they had mixed babies back way back then you know like mixed right. babies aren't a new thing we've been around you know this for is a long true time. Oh, yeah. right, 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 right. so you know telling some of those stories can kind of my my oldest is only three so i haven't had to to really she doesn't we don't say mommy's mixed with black and white and daddy's Samoan. We don't do that. We just, mm-hmm. she's right. just around people who look differently. And I don't think she thinks anything of it yet, but right. I know the questions right. are coming good. down the yeah. road and hopefully I'll be equipped <laughs> to answer those in a good way. But actually this leads me to something else I wanted to ask more week. I'm sure Jen, you have thoughts too, but wink you, you love Sheena Mason's work theory of, theory of racelessness yes um you say you want to go raceless you say you encourage people to um you know not use the word racism or race you know go 24 hours without using it but at the same time you say you love to uplift black people you love black history Mm -hmm. you don't you you know you taught black history i noticed that you say that you didn't just say i taught history i taught american Mm -hmm. history Mm -hmm. it still seems to me like I'm like, okay, he says he's he doesn't want to be about race, but he kind of seems obsessed with race in a different way than most people are obsessed with race today. And I'd say in a more positive, healthy way, right? Sure. But what is am I am I misinterpreting you there? What what's your response? Well, you know, you know, sometimes you come across people who are retired Navy or retired military or they're retired uh academics. I'm retired uh from blackness in the sense that <laughs> I don't affirmatively in the public square, you know, say or preface statements as a black American, because I now recognize at this new stage in my life that that tells you very little uh, about me and what I am about and my values and attitudes. So on the one hand, that suggests that I've kind of moved on to a different place, different psychological place. To be retired from the military or the Navy or academia doesn't mean you've completely um, uh, forgotten that muscular history. So if you're retired from the Navy or the Army, you're always are going to be someone who could be called up for duty, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. in need of a national crisis. So in a sense, um, because of my years of having lived as a Black American, uh, that muscular history remains. So I still have an affinity for and a desire for uplift of Black history. Heck, that's my family, right? So I, I support those endeavors. And I love the stories that I embrace coming of age. But I really do think the future lies in a different direction uh, because uh, retirement from racism is simply... Retirement from blackness is simply a step on the way towards the racelessness that uh, Sheena Mason and Thomas Chatterton Williams yep. and Adrian Piper uh, embrace and call for. I see that as the uh, oh, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I see that mm-hmm. as uh, Oz. That I'm simply on a journey, and at the age yeah. of sixty-one, I've now retired. And one day I will pass over into uh, a better place, the place that Sheena Mason has <laughs> in her vision. What do you think, Jen? What's your What's your thoughts yeah. on kind of this racelessness movement that we see? I love what how Wink just described retiring from race versus racelessness because part of me doesn't. I mean, want 
us to all become one caramel colored hue hue i love like wink stories of black history i love learning from him i mean those things excite me i love people who look different than me as friends so um i kind of don't want anyone to like just all of a sudden go oh i'm not even going to talk about blackness or black and i know that's not what sheena's saying but i i you know i I, what sheena's saying is more complicated so i don't want to reduce it but uh, what I, I, what the idea I like is, is instead of going raceless, is just literally retiring from race. This is what also I use this a lot. Angel Eduardo says instead of being colorblind, be color blah. Mm-hmm. So I love mm-hmm. the the diversity in our skin colors. I love the diversity in our histories. It's what Eric Smith would call discourse communities. So there are some discourse communities that Wink might be in that are more melanated than mine, but we're also overlapping our discourse communities on reading or, you know, history. And so I think if we could see more of that kind of diversity, we would be in a, in a, in a better place. So, um, what do you think Connie about racelessness as the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow as Oz? I sort of, I, I used to listen to Poe back in the day. I don't know if, if maybe she's kind of angry girl music from like the nineties. I don't know if Jen, if you ever listened (laughs) to her, I was a weird kid who listened to music that wasn't produced in my time, but there's a quote and I believe it's like her quoting her dad in one of the songs where he says, he says in his sophisticated dad voice, he's like, it's a wonderful idea, but it doesn't work. And that's kind of what I always (laughs) think of. Um, when I think of the theory of racelessness, and I'd love to be proven wrong, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I I just don't, I don't think people are going to give that up. And that if we did somehow give up race, it would just, it would be more of a semantic change. Like we'd use different words and it would be the same problems. Maybe we wouldn't say black and white. Maybe we mm-hmm. would say, oh, he has African heritage and he has, she has Italian heritage or whatever, but it would, there would still be the same um, friction points between groups, the same I don't, I don't know if you'd call it not racism, ethnicism or whatever the new word would be. Um, and so I would love to be proven wrong on that. Um, sure. I also think just from a, like I said, my biblical worldview, um, humans were, we're dead in our sin and, and sinners going to, going to keep sinning. And so some of these things it, to, to abolish some of these sin problems, I think is, are, is impossible. And so if that's, that's the goal, I don't think it'll ever be reached. Actually, Hmm. A pastor I know, black guy named Henry Flowers, he wrote a piece for the Journal of Free Black Thought about race, the theory of racelessness and him looking at it from a biblical perspective. He's a lot more eloquent than I am. He kind of says the same thing. Sheena Mason <laughs> is great. I love this idea. Yeah. It'll never work. Here's why. And okay. so when that gets published, I think that'll be, I might bring him on the podcast to talk about yeah. that. Um, because there's there's other organizations that are Christian based that are about racelessness as well. So Christians are not aligned on this, but I tend to agree with mm-hmm. Pastor Henry, who hopefully we'll have on. Sure. And I know we're going to publish his piece anyway. So that's my short little. So what did what did so... Pastor give give a synopsis of what Pastor Henry's view is like just that that why it doesn't work? Like what is should we preserve race? Does race if we preserve race does it keep on keep with racism? What's. What, he doesn't what, necessarily think that we should preserve race. Like he's not like, mm-hmm. it's very important that we keep these black and white yeah, lines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he acknowledges that race is something 
that's made up and in the eyes of God, it doesn't matter. Like nobody, right. You're not going to get up there yeah. and be like, what did you do as a black person? No, it's right. like, what did right. you do as a person? And that we're all image bearers of God and mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what your melanin is or anything else. He just doesn't see it as a solution because of that sin problem inherent in, oh, in okay. humans. Yeah, so, okay. um, he's like, yep. I wish that people didn't divide on these color lines. You know, he says Christ is the solution, right? Mm-hmm, Come mm. to Christ. Okay. Well, Connie, to, to return to my uh, my guy, so is my rum guy in Kauai, who is Native American, but embraces all the different strands of his identity, you wouldn't consider him to be at that state of racelessness. I don't know. I would have to talk to him a little bit more. I'd have to mm-hmm. learn a little bit more about him because, mm-hmm. like I said, even with you, Wink, I, I don't think that you're at the state of racelessness. Oh, no, uh, no, I'm not. I'm not. Clearly, right, but I'm, you're, I'm, but you're, but yeah. it's similar. But you have a similar attitude as this gentleman mm-hmm. that you're referring to. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the 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 Venn diagram between the two of you has a has a large overlapping section. So, right. Um, I would just have to know a little bit a little bit more about that, and even, you know, there's not very many people that I personally know who are fully like I am racist. You know, this mm-hmm. is my lifestyle. Really, T Lee at FBT and Jake Mackey. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of oh, ascribed to that camille foster camille foster well yeah but i don't know him so oh, in yeah. his day in their i don't know sheena like that i don't know how she lives yeah. her like daily life yeah. and even lee and jake Mackey, i don't know how they live their daily lives either and so sometimes i find it hard to believe that these people are completely raceless and even mm-hmm. in the way that the, jake always says i want to get rid of the whole thing he loves yeah. sheena mason all of that but he uses racial language and Sure. Stuff still to sure. this day. So yeah. I'm kind of like, but are you raceless? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but he's <laughs> at FBT. So how can he really, we're not free thought, we're free black thought. So that, right. anyways, right, 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 I'm going, right, right. we're going down a tangent here that we don't need to go down necessarily. I think this is actually a really great stopping point. And I, honestly, the theory of racelessness just kind of hurts my brain. Maybe I'm too dumb for it. I've honestly oh, thought that at times. Like, I'm just oh. like, oh, I just can't. Maybe I'm brainwashed. Maybe that's a part of me that just is not free thinking or something. I don't know. But you know what it is? I've called, I've I've told Sheena this before. I think she's like the Galileo of our age. Mm -hmm. So she's someone who sees the imperfect, she sees that dogma is not the answer. She can look into the future, but Mm -hmm. we may not appreciate it in our age, in our lifetime. But I really think in a hundred years, she's going to be, her vision's going to be adopt it. It's going to be the consensus vision. Uh, mm-hmm. It's going to take a generation or two of people to move from race to retirement status to Oz, to yeah. the pot of gold. So I think I, th- I think she's a she's a future thinker, for lack of a better oh, way. To absolutely. Put it. She 100% I'm gonna, is. I'm going to call her Galileo from now on. I'm just going to yes, <laughs> right. I'm gonna get right. off the phone here and be like, Galileo. She'll be like, what? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Didn't you know? Yeah. Galileo? She's a Galileo Mason. Yeah. (laughs) I think we were closer to having that, you know, living in a raceless society in the nineties, you know, even just looking at music, TV shows, things were getting more and more integrated, more and more black characters, more and more black figures. And, but it wasn't, 
that didn't seem to be the focus that they were that wasn't the conversation like oh this new cop show where there's a black cop and a white cop right, now right, right. you get a million think right, pieces right, right. in the new york times right. about how important right. it is that the right. you know chief of police is black back right right then so right. there was some of that but not not as much so i think we've regressed well, there, a little bit do you do you yeah. fault critical race theory for that increased race consciousness oh it definitely plays a role for sure mm-hmm. absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely and it i mean and critical race theory existed back then too it just wasn't right as popular right. Yeah. wasn't the standard that it is today or it just hasn't considered... made its march yet into and do you and do you think that the recent u.s supreme court decision in the harvard case will begin to return us to that better time than 1990s. Hmm. I think the Supreme Court case was the correct one and good, uh-huh. but I think the, the stuff that I'm talking about is so cultural that it has hmm. to be, I don't know, that policy changes and more political stuff. There's a debate, right? Is politics downstream of culture? Is culture downstream of politics? Right, right. right. But I think, I think the culture has to drive that in terms of just the way people make movies and TV shows and music mm. and what they choose to highlight and emphasize about art. Really. I think art will actually drive a lot mm. of this, mm. a lot of this change because that's where people get, that's where the culture comes out of. in in, in my mind. So we need more essays, articles, screenplays, novels, things like that. <laughs> and people just, and people just blending people appropriating cultures and working together across cultures yeah. to create art, but then not making a big deal about it. I was listening right, to, right. again, I'm going to show how weird I am as a, and was as a kid, but I was listening to Lyle Lovett and oh as my a gosh. Texan, you'll appreciate this and his, you know, his large band, right? He had, he infused black gospel music, mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. In, but nobody, I've never seen a think piece written about it. I've never seen, he had black people going on tour with him. He was, he's immensely popular guy. It wasn't a big deal. It was just like, this is cool music. And it was popular and people loved it and people still love him to this day. He sells out the the Chateau St. Michel here in Washington every year he comes. I mean, I'm the youngest person in the crowd, but um, (laughs) you know, nobody, nobody necessarily thought it was a big deal. It just was, we're just creating stuff together. And I think that is, what I want to get want to get back mm. to is just pe- people across racial or ethnic lines coming together to sure. create, but they don't, they're not doing it. I wanted to find a black guy to make this movie with. No, I found this guy. We connected. Yeah. We made this interesting yeah. product. Everybody loves right. it. That doesn't mean that, that there can't be themes that have to do with race in the movie mm-hmm, or in the music mm-hmm. or in the poetry or whatever. Mm-hmm. My theory, Connie, is that cultures cycle and what will happen is, in the 2030s and the 2040s, you're going to have young kids born who are going to be, like kids always are, rebels against the elders. They're going to look at the way things are constructed, the emphasis on race, and they're going to begin to rebel against that. Because kids always rebel against their elders. And by the time 2050 rolls around, you're going to have the vanguard of that generation. You're going to have young adults who are going to say, no more, we've had enough. Race consciousness is what grandpa and grandma and mom and dad do. Uh, I hope you're We're going to do the opposite. Yes. It's going to happen. That's my theory. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's a good place for us to 
kind of wrap things up. Um, I could talk to you guys for hours. You guys made me talk more than I was expecting. <laughs> well, that's um, good, though. That's good interview. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. oh, I needed to come. I needed to do my homework and come a little bit more prepared. So we'll do 10 questions here, and I'll just go back and forth with who answers Great. it first. So each of you will answer okay. all the questions, if that Great. makes sense. Okay. Okay. Short answers or long answers? Try to be answers. quick. Try to be you quick, but nobody ever Speed round. Is... Speed round. Yeah. Speed I round. Mean, We'll okay. see how fast it goes. The, the last right. guy I interviewed understood the assignment. He was fast, but most people right. are not super fast. Mm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Jen, Black History Month, yay or nay? Nay. Wink? Yay. Wink, what is your go-to mixed drink? Oh, Long Island iced tea. Jen? Mixed? I'm a wine person. Um, Vodka, seltzer, I don't know, something. Something <laughs> with vodka. Jen, where is there systemic racism in America? I don't know. Wink. The White House. Just teasing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. <laughs> Wink. Wink. Do you celebrate Juneteenth? No. Jen? No. Jen, should the United States return to the gold standard? That would never work. No. Wink. No. Wink, is kneeling during the national anthem an appropriate form of protest? No. Jen? I don't agree with it, but yes, it is an appropriate form of protest. Jen, are the best things in life really free? (sighs) Yes. Wink? Yes. Wink, Jordan or LeBron? (laughs) Jordan. (laughs) Jen? Jordan. Jen, what is the biggest issue facing Black America today? Oh, gosh. Um, Woke racism. Wink. Psychology. And the final 10th question, Wink. Should we tear down statues of slaveholders? (sighs) No. Jen. No, but we should build up some, some heroes. Some of those heroes back to the hero mm-hmm, topic. Sure. Let's mm-hmm. let's celebrate them and promote them more. Yep. Okay, well, awesome, 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 guys! You actually did really. You were faster than some people who are just one, <laughs> and you were two. So great job! Do you either of you have any final thoughts, final things that you want to say, projects you want to promote, just something you need to get off your chest, a topic we didn't cover that you were hoping to speak on? I I just have two points. Just 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 silly observations. Uh, point number one. Jack and Jill never came up, which is kind of it interesting. Didn't. Oh, that's yeah. That's kind of interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that's a good thing, though. Well, I don't that's know. Elite, elite, that everyone read the book. You'll learn about Jack and Jill. That's there true. You go. That's a plug. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And number two, and I mentioned this to Jen a while ago, I have yet to receive a question about Julie Hewitt. Uh, Julie Hewitt was the, uh, the girl that I had a crush on in high school. yeah right 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 i remember that vignette yeah 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 which is kind of interesting to me so anyway why did you think that would be something that would be commonly asked about because at a certain level that was probably my first um emotional uh encounter with the box of race as a black person Mm -hmm. okay because you know love and crushes I mean, in, in a way, that should be some of the freest things you can imagine. And that was uh, uh, a, a, a crushing revelation to me that no matter who I was or how much promise I had in life, it didn't matter to Julie's dad. 
Yeah. Yeah. Janet looked like maybe you had something you wanted to say. I was just going to say like, you know, we're, like we mentioned at the very beginning on the truth in between.com we're weekly adding the, the, uh, remember us on our remember us page. So if that's something that is interesting to people to check that out. And we also have our truth in between Substack too, if people are interested. So sure. Sure. And we will link those things in the show description so people can look all that stuff up again. We have Winkfield Twyman Jr. And Jennifer Richmond wink. I never know. Like, are you WF Twyman? Are you Winkfield F Twyman? Are you Winkfield Is it the full moon or a half moon? I don't know. (laughs) And and Jennifer Richmond here, their book letters in black and white, a new correspondence on race in America is now available. And I highly recommend you checking it out and reading it. Thank you so much for coming on. This was a great, a great, great episode. And I know we'll be in contact soon for the next, the next project, the next promotion, the next podcast. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yes. You're listening to the Free Black Thought Podcast.